Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 151. I'm your host, Derek Moore. And with me back on the program after a two-week hiatus is my longtime semi-permanent co-host, CEO of Zega Financial, Jay Pestricelli. Jay, how are you doing today? Derek, doing well. Congratulations on passing the 150 mark. I'm jealous I wasn't there for it. I heard it was a thrilling episode. I know. Uh, I I, uh, I just, sorry, man. I really wish I could have been there. But I'm here. I feel like maybe prime numbers might be my thing. You know, I, just I was going to say, <laughs> you've, you've never hit the big round number milestone episodes, but you tend to, you know, if, if we if we did a scatter plot, you're, you're sort of right before, right after. So right, um, anyway, right, right. well, you did miss, I read all 14 pages of the, uh, the PDF of the Fed minutes really. No, I didn't do that, but I did highlight those. If anybody wants to go back and listen to last Oof. week's breakdown, um, what, what sort, you know, and last week I kind of Jay went into what surprised people should the people have been surprised and like, what was the language like that? The balance sheet reduction. We'll get to some of that, but I think this week, you know, we've we've talked before about experts are wrong a lot. You know, people go on CNBC, and a lot of times there's pressure when you go on TV. They say, "Hey, give us your trade or give us your uh, your prediction." And you know, some that's not necessarily the way most people invest when they go on there. But we were talking, and we said, "Why don't we do a little contrarian corner?" Where okay, let's go through some trades that are outside the norm go against the the current a little bit. And Jay, I think, you know, we'll get into inflation. How do you fix inflation? Is the Fed really going to raise rates? But why don't we start it with that? So Jay, what are you thinking contrarian wise? Like if you were going to bet against, and by the way, I should, before we get into this, don't, don't trade off these. This is for, <laughs> this is for entertainment. Really, it's, it should be entertainment it's, purposes. It's and education, some of these, a little entertainment, right? It's a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Jay, what do you start? This is not investment advice. Not investment yeah. advice at all. But, right. So, the, you're right. The theme has been inflation. The theme certainly this year has been uh, the Fed's going to act, you know, sooner than it had to. And they're kind of getting caught off sides. But I think, I think the consensus is wrong on this. I don't, you know, necessarily believe we're going to get four rate increases this year, which seems to be, you know, what everybody is saying. I just, I just, I think that's wrong. And, and I think inflation is probably peaking out here. Right. And so, uh, for me, I'm going to take the other side of everybody here and, you know, time to get out of commodities, in my opinion, uh, you know, short commodities, right. Be on the other side of that, be on the other side of materials. Um, I, you know, I'll exclude, uh, oil from that conversation, uh, only because, I think that oil is based on things other than uh, inflation. So I'm going to take oil out of it. Uh, I'm going to say that, you know, dollar gets stronger, commodities drop. Commodities have definitely risen. And I said to somebody, you know, because the quick thing with if someone said, hey, I, I think there's going to be a lot more inflation. Inflation is going to be higher than, than people think. How would I position a portfolio? And you and I would say, well, let's stay in large gap equities, but just be hedged. And if right. what you're you know, normally people diversify because they want to try and use diversification to hedge. We we prefer hedging directly. But that aside, a lot of people would go on and say, okay, well, we could buy tips bonds. We could short treasuries. We could be long commodities. But I feel like people aren't early in that one. I mean, commodities had a really good, you know, if I just look at, let's say something like the Invesco has the Commodity index tracking fund, and is that the best one to use? I don't know, but you know, year to date, what's, what's the ticker on that one, Derek? D- DBC is the the ticker on that one. Thank you. So you know, their one year, I think, was close to forty three percent. So a one year, yeah, you know, year, yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an up and to the right chart, right? It's it's definitely been you know the story, the way people have been trying to play inflation. That's a good point. Yep. The, the interesting thing too, by the way, since inception, or let's just use the 10-year, the 10-year average annualized return is negative 1.84. So this right. has been sort of a widowmaker trade for a while. Yeah. And you know, the, the, the thought for a lot of years was, hey, if the markets are going to be turbulent, use commodities as kind of a derivative or alternative, I should say, an alternative portion of your portfolio. And that has 
you know, disappointed people through uh, the sell-off uh, that we've, anything that we've seen after 08, right? Markets dropped, so have commodities, right? It didn't really help you uh, in the COVID sell-off, didn't help you in 2018. It didn't help you with, you know, all the kind of market wiggles we had, the taper tantrum in 2013. Commodities just haven't been there for you as, you know, as an alternative and a diversifying agent. They've, like you said, they have, they have disappointed. They have not generated returns over time. Now, I think this year it's been a little different. I think there was fear of stagflation. And in the stagflation environment, which by the way, I don't think we're in at all. Like I'm not suggesting that, right? But a stagflation environment, stocks don't work, bonds don't work, cash doesn't work. In those scenarios, commodities can be a solution. And I think that's why it had such a strong year last year. That would be the so the contrarian is hey, you either don't put commodities if you're using traditional portfolios as an inflation hedge, or you actually go out and short it, meaning you sell it and hope to buy it back uh, lower later. And would you include gold in that? Because gold, you know, here's the other crazy thing: if you would have said at the beginning of the year, hey, inflation is going to be up seven percent next year, what should I be in? Well, you know, commodities definitely did good. But gold was down uh, just a little over four percent in twenty one. Like, who would have picked that if you thought inflation was seven percent, right? Yeah, that I mean, that's everybody's everybody's always positioned gold as kind of that inflation hedge. It's just not. It's been a disappointment. Uh, you know, I'm looking at a chart at it right now. It's been sideways, right? I mean, let me look at a five year chart. I mean, yeah, okay, it's up for over the last five years, but from where we were when you started talking about inflation, like. You know, let's say the middle of 2020, it's flat. It's unchanged. It's been a disappointment in an inflationary environment. And it's down. I think year to date, it's down a point and a half, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it's down this year so far, but uh, it's early this year. But, you know, from its peak that we saw, and I'm just looking at the gold futures, right? From its peak of about almost $2,100 per ounce, now we're at like just shy of just under $1,800, right? Right. And that's. You know, you're down 10% from the top as you were trying to prepare yourself for this, you know, traditional inflation hedge. It's just not working for that. Here's the so imagine this. Okay. So you, you imagine you had the, the total, hey, I'm going to hedge inflation. I think it's going to be high in 2020 and or 2021. And you say, okay, I'll short treasuries. I'll buy gold. I'll buy commodities. Okay. Commodities did well. The, the general basket, gold was down. And, you know, if, you, if we take something like IEF, which is the seven to 10 year iShares US Treasury bond ETF, uh, I mean, it's, by the way, year to date, it's it's down up for obvious reasons. But, you know, last year in 21, you would have made a little over 3%. So again, I mean, imagine that, hey, inflation is going to be 7%. I'm going to short treasuries. I'm going to buy gold. And... You know, you would have been marginally okay with the short treasuries. You would have lost money in gold. Who thought, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, But, well, you know, let's actually, so we've heard kind of my contrarian. Why don't we uh, flip to your contrarian trade, Derek? And I think it'll probably lead to a deeper conversation on this topic still. Yeah. And this is one that you probably can't, a retail trader probably can't do. Uh, The first one, the second one, you know, probably. The the easy one is... um, well, I shouldn't say the easy one. And it dovetails on what you said, Jay. It, the Fed is not going to raise as much as we th- everyone thinks they will. You know, They're hearing four raises, three raises. I don't know. Maybe they'll only do two. It's, it's a complex trade, but you could do this. The Fed funds futures. So the December Fed funds futures, for example, is pricing in almost, it's right on the line of three to four uh, rate hikes. And so if you were an adventurous type, and you shouldn't do this at home, but you could short Fed funds futures, it's the futures contract, or you could do a complex options trade like a butterfly on a certain number below where the or above where the Fed funds future is, which meaning rates go up less. Um, it, it's really not a practical trade for anybody to do, but that would be my first one. And my second one is short uh, tips. Treasury inflation protected securities. So let me stop there, get your comments, and we can dive into it a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're right, Derek. There's obviously so it sounds like you think there's some Fed raises coming, but not as many that are priced into the market, right? So be on the flip side of where the market is pricing in uh, three and a half, four raises for the year, right? Makes sense. Um, the short tips is an interesting one because again, tips are designed right to be inflation protected, right? They're designed to you know give you some sort of offset. We we all know that. Uh, in a rising rate environment, in an inflationary environment, bonds are going to perform poorly, right? Rates go up, bond values go down. So you'd think, you know, tips are the way to protect yourself. So yeah, maybe expand a little bit why you're against adding tips to the portfolio or even getting bearish tips right now. So tips still have duration. So let, let's just real quick, for anyone who doesn't know what a, a, a treasury inflation protected security is, you buy the tips bond. And as in, if inflation is goes up, the principal value. So every bond starts, you know, a thousand dollar principal value, right, or the the par value. It would adjust higher that par value or the principal value by whatever the inflation rate is. And conversely, if you have deflation, you could see a decline in those bonds. And and uh, I'll I'll put in the show notes. We did a. Uh, an episode with Marcel Benjamin, our friend over at uh, State Street, who's you know absolute masterclass in that. I'll, I'll put that in the in the show notes. But the thing with tips bonds is, a lot of those are actually trading negative yield to maturity. And when what does that mean? It means that all else equal, if you hold that bond, then and inflation doesn't go up enough. You'll have a. You're not going to have a really good return. And the other thing is, and I'm trying to keep this simple, Jay. And the and you know, I'll refer people back to that that episode if they want really get in, into the details on this. Tips bonds have duration, and so as interest rates go higher, tips bonds go lower. Inflation can cause an increase in the market values, but in the near term or in the in before maturity. If interest rates spike, TIPS bonds have more interest rate risk in some cases than nominal treasuries. And so let me pause there, Jay, and bring you back into this and get your thoughts. Yeah. So when you say the nominal, the you know, the 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 actual value of the the security itself will decrease more than the yield is going to pay you, right? And it's because of this duration, because it'll be better to buy it later. Versus what the price is today, right? So it drops to adjust. And while you know, I'm just I'm taking a look at the TIP, the iShares Trust uh, Tips ETF, and you know, this year so far it's down almost two percent. Now that's just price change, right? There haven't I don't think there've been any, any dividends in it yet, but um, just price change for it is it's down. And you'd say, wait, this is the thing that's supposed to protect me against inflation, and inflation is at a forty year high. Why is this not thing making money? And it's because of what you just said. The underlying security itself is the thing that is uh, got the risk of uh, has the interest rate risk in it. Derek, you sent me out uh, sent me you sent out to our investment committee a document that kind of talked about the projected impact on a lot of different fixed income securities with just a simple one percent rise in interest rates. Uh, you know, kind of assuming a parallel shift across the whole yield curve. Um, and you know, the tips number on that. So even with tips paying us what they're going to pay us, uh, it looks like a total return of like a negative, almost 3% in tips, right? The value themselves will drop about four, about a negative 3% total return after what you're getting paid in the tips, uh, is going to be the end result. So again, you know, I, I, we could dig into that data a little more, but I don't think you're on the wrong side of this trade, not using tips in a portfolio right now. Um, especially with all of the duration risk associated with those bonds. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of the, it's it's a really contrarian trade. It's running into the building when everyone is running out. But sometimes the most obvious place isn't the right place, and this could be well, one of those cases. More often than not, that's the case. Yeah. Right? More often than not, yeah. following the herd usually doesn't pay off. Well, I'll give a little, you know, inside baseball. And and back in I think February, it was probably March, whatever the lowest of the market was. We were on our investment committee call, and we don't make, you know, we're not picking asset classes and things like that, right? We we buy the market, we hedge, and that that's the way we diversify our risk is by hedging. But 
I kind of said, hey, if the ultimate contrarian play when the market was really down, if was to throw you know half your money in triple C rated junk bonds because the junkier the better, the spreads widen the most there, and small cap value, and maybe even small cap international value. I mean, two asset classes that just got destroyed. Yeah, and those are the ones that actually came way, way back. I mean, it's I'm not saying we would have done that, but I'm like, hey, if you really are, want to put the contrarian trade on, nobody wanted that stuff. Nobody wanted triple C junk bonds or uh, small cap value, especially small cap international. But yeah, uh, I mean, it's just, it's it's more of, you know, it's a little bit of an academic exercise, but yeah. I mean, Jay, the other thing too, we talked about that 1% rise in rates and and you can talk to this a little bit. It, it just kind of shows that going out 30 years, uh, going out long-term using bonds, there's a lot of interest rate risk there as well. And even in the US aggregate, the AGG, right? Uh, absolutely, right? The aggregate bond index, which has a, you know, a lot of different assets in it, whether it's assets-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, treasuries, investment grade, high yield, uh, you know, it's kind of an aggregate of the whole index, um, the the farther out in duration you go, the worse the projected performance is going to be. Now, Derek, you told me the other day, uh, actually, let me let me comment on the 30-year for a second. So this data projects that if the if interest rates were to go up 1%, the actual price return on your 30-year bond would drop nearly 20%. So think about that. You're getting paid, what's the 30-year these days? Is it two? Around 2%. Yeah. Yeah. So you're getting paid 2% a year to give the government the money. But in one year, if rates go up by just 1%, your underlying asset will drop by 20%. So, you know, and let alone if we go up, you know, 2% over the next two years, right? At that point, hard to project that you're ever going to get your money back from all of that, right? Like you, you have, you're locked into this thing and you're holding it for a long time. So, you know, bonds with longer duration right now are just not going to be able, they're just not going to pay you back. Uh, the 10-year, similar scenario, right? The price return on the 10-year, the actual value of the bond, of a 10-year bond, uh, should drop about 9%. The price is going to drop 9% with a 1% increase in, in rates. So again, you know, that's just not so... I mean, I don't think anybody, uh, you know, the, the crowd believes and everybody believes, right? The Fed is trying to push rates up, trying to slow down inflation. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, so... If you think rates are going to go up, being in any kind of duration in bonds seems like you know it's going to be it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough sledding if that's the the path you want to invest in. So, Derek, what? So let's go to the AGG for a minute. What is the kind of duration on the aggregate bond index right now? Around? Yeah, I I think it's uh, I know it's I think it's above eight. And yeah, I thought uh, it was course, close to nine. Know, yep. Yeah, I think no, I think you're right. It's it's and I believe it's probably it's been higher. But we're in the highest areas that's ever been, for sure. Yeah. I mean- yeah. And So it's it's just going to be under pressure, right? The longer the duration, the harder it's going to be able to perform in a rising rate environment. And by the way, this is nothing new, right? This has always been the risk and uh, when it comes to fixed income, right? That's the thing that always puts that asset class in the most trouble. This is, uh, of course, JP Morgan's data. This is from the Guide to the Markets, which if you haven't downloaded that and you have a couple hours to kill and you really like the markets- and I'm saying this with a smile on my face because I really like this data. Uh, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to how to get to this. I, I think individuals can get it. I'm not sure, though, if it's just for institutions, but I'll put the link. And it is interesting, though, that uh, the, the only things that would be positive by their projections on a total return basis are floating rate, loans, uh, US high yield, and it doesn't specify the duration of convertibles. Convertibles make sense because. If equities are helped, well, I actually, I shouldn't put words in their mouth, but my, my thought on that is, okay, if you can convert into the equity and the equity does okay during a rising rate environment, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's yeah, those what convertibles the will hold their value, right? Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. And, and, dura- and it's got, there's sort of an option adjusted duration in there and what they can convert in and, you know, those things, because, you know, there's a decision point there, but high yield is, uh, yeah, I mean, and, and high yield because so the market return there was minus three point eight, but then when you build in the yield as well, it brings the projection to zero point four percent. Of course, that doesn't include any you know increase in bankruptcies or anything like that. But I mean, it's, it's sort of part of why I mean, at least in some of our portfolios, 
we do use short duration high yield, which is not reflected here. And, you know, in some portfolios, we hedge that as well. But um, it, it's got less duration risk. It's got other types of risk, like if bankruptcies continue, the credit situation deteriorates, those types of things. But I, I did think that was interesting, Jay, of, of the three that they're potentially positive. Those were the three. Yeah, like the absolute best here on the total return across, you know, the fixed income market is a 2% return with rates going up 1% and that's the convertibles. And that's because it's based on the stock price. So I, I'm going to tell you, it's just, it's just a hard asset class to be in. So, so I'm going to take us off on a little tangent here, Derek, you know, what do we yeah. tell clients when they say, all right, so fine, I need income and I can't use really any bots, right? I mean, if I'm willing to take some short duration, high yield risk, fine, that might be positive, but what do I do? How do I generate income? I can't take the risk of a stock market that the, the equity markets have, where do you find income? Well, alternatives. I mean, alternative alternatives. income, which, yeah. I mean, that, that's the place you go, right? That's, that's, where, that's what our solution is, right? So yes, little yeah. plug for us, but right, we've been running, you know, premium capturing strategies in the options market, the derivatives markets for a long time, over a decade at this point, right? And yeah, you have to start to expand what's available to you. I'm not telling everybody to go out and you know short the market using options, but what what we are telling you is there's other places within the market that you can generate some uh, uh, some some regular income that's not tied to interest rates. For us, the solution happens to be you know our high probability option strategies. And if people are interested, they should reach out to you, Derek, and ask for more information. Or you could go to the Zega Financial website and check it out. But there's plenty of information there. We're not going to quote the prices, but I will tell you that you know it is something that is going to perform very different than a fixed income uh, solution for your income slice of your portfolio. Yeah, thanks for the uh, the plug there, Jay. I'll just uh, Derek D E R E K dot more M O O R E at zegafinancial.com. That's Z is in zebra. E is in Eddie, G is in George, A is in Apple. Financial is up to you to spell correctly. Jay, the the other thing, um, I you know, I was I was just thinking about this too, and a, a shameless plug for my book. And if you buy mine, you might as well buy yours, buy and hedge. But in my book, Broken Pie Chart, I had a full chapter. I called it Target Date Surprise. And the premise there was if we ever did have a situation where rates were going up materially. And the target date funds, of course, take somebody's age and shift a lot more into fixed income the closer they are to retirement than in retirement. And the, the target date surprise was, I don't think people realize how much infl- uh, you know, interest rate risk some of the portfolios have. And I realize a lot of people, you know, that's the option that they choose in their 401ks. And it's probably a, a, a good choice for a lot of people. But I, I throw that out, Jay, because I just sometimes I think the risk is not understood with those products. Yeah, you think a target date fund is designed to help you based on the, you know, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna retire in 10 years. Let me go with the target date fund that matures in 10 years. But what ends up happening is, you know, it uses modern portfolio theory, which to us is not very modern. It's about 70 years old. It was developed in the 50s, to say that, oh, as you're approaching retirement. You should have a larger and larger percentage of your portfolio in bonds for safety. Well, in an environment that we're in right now, that's actually the worst thing that you should do, right? So, for from us, right, we don't. We I am recommending for any client that asks me about their target date funds, take it out now, right? Put it into something where we can actually define your risk. But right as it's getting closer and closer to the target, the percentage of bonds increases, and we just talked about you know the risk of bonds in your portfolio. Um, and yes, maybe it's not going to have, you know, 30 year treasuries in it, but it's definitely going to have, you know, investment grade, going to have some high yield. It probably will have some, uh, you know, five year treasuries in it. And so, you know, those holdings take all kinds of interest rate risk. And while you're trying to get yourself safe in anticipation of a need for the money, you're actually adding risk into the portfolio. So, you know, we are, I have not been recommending those and I've actually been you know, guiding people elsewhere in their 401ks to move away from those target date funds. Yeah, that's uh, no, that's a good point. Jay, this takes us to the, the next topic we want to cover. And that's, well, it actually dovetails on what you said and what I talked about too, with the idea of 
the Fed raising rates. And there's this thing where, you know, we're we're in a situation now where there's inflation. It was 7% year over year. And some of the expectations, I think I looked at the Cleveland Fed forecast for January. So we just released in January, December's numbers. In February, we get January's numbers. And at least uh, over January, it's, you know, close to uh, year over year. And there's different aspects of the the inflation report. Used cars were up. Uh, new cars were up. Lodging was up away from home. Different things. Um I don't know what soup did, Jay. Soup is really small. That somebody always asked me about soup because <laughs> I, soup's not I mentioned it once. <laughs> somebody said, "Hey, we need more soup in the uh, uh, more weight in soup in the, in the number." Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rental cars. You know, there's some distortions in there, and December went up on a month over month basis, less than October and November. But it's this idea of the Fed has to do something, and. I think why I want to open the discussion here is there's fiscal policy, which is where the government decides something or Congress passes a law and they send checks out to people or they increase unemployment insurance or they do spending, they do you know fiscal policy. And then there's monetary policy and monetary policy is raising or lowering rates, buying or selling bonds, doing any number of things, uh, the reverse repo market. So Jay, I'm going to throw it to you. Are we sure that what people want the Fed to do, which is raise rates, would actually curb inflation? What do you think? Yeah, it's I, I, I'm having trouble connecting the dots if this is supply-driven inflation, right? Uh, also known as cost-push inflation. So if it's a, if it's the supply chain, if it's higher wages, if it's you know, higher costs of production that are causing the inflation that we have. I'm having trouble connecting the dots why the Fed raising rates is actually going to adjust this. So let's let's kind of think through the situation here for a second. I'll, I'll explain why I'm, you know, having trouble with, with, you know, seeing that raising rates as a solution or at least to help reduce inflation. So let's say you're, if you've, you know what, we're in, still in the pandemic. Let's say you've been to a pharmacy. Hopefully, nobody got COVID the last few weeks. I, I, I say that I did. Uh, you know, it just seems like it's a nice spike going on in January. So people have been to the drugstore, right? And when you go into a drugstore, the shelves, in my opinion, are bare, right? Like how many, you know, different versions of Advil and Aleve used to be on the shelves. That's all gone, right? Even the generics are all gone. And so when you look at that kind of an environment, all the supply has been kind of used up, right? Co companies have had good sales because they've gone through the inventory that they've been holding for a long time and they're trying to resupply, right? So uh, so now you're this pharmacy and you've got to resupply. What are you going to do? Well, you got to go buy the inventory to put on the shelves. Well, usually what happens when you're buying inventory is you take a loan, right? You got to borrow for that. That's not cash that you take out. You borrow with the expectation that you're going to eventually be able to turn over your inventory. Well, what happens when rates are higher? Guess what? The cost of borrowing is even higher at that point. So what do you do? You have to pass that expense on to, uh, uh, to the consumer. We all know that that same drugstore can't get anybody to come to work. So what have they done? They've had to push wages up and hired more people. What does that do? Guess what? That's going to mean you're in the supply. It's going to cost more again. And so, you know, when you think about the things that are driving up the cost, raising rates is, I think, only going to increase costs for uh, uh, for actually retail. And we could talk about if you're you know, a company that's, you know, cutting down, looking for lumber, right? Or you're, you know, you're a supplier that's a producer that's, you know, trying to manufacture and keep up with the supply. All of those businesses operate on a loan basis, right? There's always borrowing involved as they're ramping up to meet their sales targets. And so, you know, again, as you're raising rates, I think you're only going to increase costs and that's going to be passed on to the consumers. And I'll finish this out with something that you probably talked about last week, Derek. The Fed has hinted that, you know, maybe they want to take actions that necessarily don't mean they have to raise rates, but they could still affect the yield curve from flattening, right? They still want to steepen the yield curve a little bit. 
So, you know, they talked about quantitative tightening. So I think the Fed has a handle on this a little bit. At least they realize that raising rates is not going to solve the inflation problem that we have right now. And so that's where I, you know, I'm just trying to connect the dots with it going, I don't actually think raising rates is going to be good for the inflation situation. So a pause there. I rambled a little bit, Derek. You know, why don't you poke some holes in that or tell me where you agree? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a cost of carry for inventory. And I think that's one of the things in your drugstore example. If the owner of that drugstore, and let's imagine it's not a chain, it's a single person, you know, or persons, and it's in a small town and they say, well, I've got to get a loan to buy the inventory to put on my shelves. And if the loan rates go up, because those are a lot of times are, you know, short duration notes or floating rates. If, if that cost goes up, wouldn't the cost of those goods also go up or would it just reduce how much that the owner of that grocery store or, or drugstore buys and then starts to trickle down? So, Jay, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I think borrowing costs have to go up, right? That's the whole point, right? The whole point of raising rates is to slow down the economy, right? I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're saying, hey, look, we don't want to make cash as available, as cheap as it has been in the past. It may slow down uh, investments and growth. And you'd say, like, why do we want to slow down the market? Well, listen, you got a red hot market and you don't want it to create a lot of debt and you want to protect companies from blowing themselves up, right? It always seems like debt and borrowing is the thing that breaks uh, uh, you know, into large, you know, drawn out recessions. Heck, that was the Great Depression, right? So, uh, you know, the, we still, those kind of borrowing rates don't exist anymore. But my, my point being that, you know, that's why a Fed wants to kind of slow things down because they're worried about when a crash comes, it will be a lot bigger of a crash. So, yes, raising rates, uh, uh, is, is, you know, designed to cause increased costs in doing business. So businesses actually end up spending less. So, you know, I think that's kind of the nature of the beast here. Um, you know, I was thinking of a way to punch a hole in what I said, and I do think there's some sectors of the market. Oh, I'm going to punch holes in it. Don't worry, but I'm going oh, right, to we'll, agree we'll with we'll you on a lot punching, of points baby. too. <laughs> okay. Go right, ahead. Well, I, I just think it goes back to is we have to f- start with what type of recession was it? And I'll, I'll throw another term in there. Uh, there's one economist who didn't call it a, a recession. He called it the great suppression because barring the shutdowns by the government, and you and I have said before, we don't get into you know COVID policy. Neither of us are a virologist. We did watch many episodes of ER over the years. But right. the idea of would there have even been a recession if the the really you know strong armed harsh government full shutdowns didn't happen, I think that's an interesting question to ask. So, when those happened, was it a demand problem or was it a supply problem? And I'm starting to be in the camp, or I, I'm in the camp now that it is a supply side issue that happened. And when you have a supply side issue, the exact wrong thing to do is to throw money at it because it's like, hey, we can't get stuff. And imagine you're outside of a a football stadium, not a giant game, because I think that's kind of like oil going negative. You probably would get New York Giants tickets. You'd have to pay somebody to take them. (laughs) I I can't even give away my tickets at this point, really. Yeah. But imagine you're at the, the national championship game and prices, the market price is $300 for a ticket. There's not enough supply, so so price has risen. And then all of a sudden, you give everyone outside more money. That price is going to go up, but they can't give you more tickets. They're not going to be able to supply more tickets. There's a finite. So maybe it's not the best example, but I think a lot of this was caused by fiscal policy, well-intentioned maybe, but I think that's the issue. And I'm going to agree with you on this. If fiscal policy caused this, why does raising rates do anything to fix the supply side problem? And I think that's where you're you're right. I think where you could poke holes in it is when you increase the cost of borrowing, you do reduce demand. You can cause a fall in asset prices and there's a wealth effect 
that leads to less spending. And I think if you can have a, a fall in, let's say, you know, the confidence of businesses to order, yeah, I mean, I, I think you could reduce demand, which would help supply, but at what cost, Jay? And I think that's the thing. If you do, if the Fed makes a policy mistake and they raise rates, and that's not the thing really that would would have helped, but it does cause problems. Are you causing a recession when the problem all along is is fiscal? I'll stop there, though, Jay. Yep, yep. I think I think you're right. I'll, I'll maybe I'll even give another example that really supports that uh, that point, Derek. You know, when when the when rates were cut dramatically in 2020, we saw a housing boom. Right. I think there were a couple of reasons why we saw a housing boom. I think people realized, like, oh my gosh, I got to get out of this congested city that I live in, and I got to move to a, you know, to a house, a house that is more spaced out. Being in an apartment is not a great place to live. Or, uh, you know, maybe you realize that, oh, we're working from home, so I need a bigger house because the kids are doing school and I'm doing work from home. Whatever, whatever all the reasons were. Um, I think the first wave of it was due to a drop in interest rates. And, you know, you could do the math when people buy a house, they do the math on how much they're spending every month, not necessarily the value or the cost of the house, right? When you're, when you're using a mortgage, uh, you go, oh, I could spend $3,000 a month. Oh, now that rates dropped from 6% to 3%, I could get a lot more house or I'm willing to pay more for the house that I want to get. So I think when you raise rates, you'll see a slowdown in the housing market. That's almost... Gosh, it's almost immediate, and all the subsequent, you know, purchases that come along with the house, right? Nobody buys a house and go, ah, I'm done spending money. Everybody buys a house and goes, well, there's this room I want to change over here, and I'd like to get a new refrigerator, and I don't want to use the previous owner's, you know, washer dryer. I want to get my own stuff there, right? So you saw it in appliances out of the gate in 2020. We talked about this in other podcasts way, way early on about how it's just harder to get things like uh, uh, appliances. So, you know, when you, when you think about all that, I do think that, you know, rising rates will cause people to spend less money on things like houses and even cars, right? There's the whole car dynamic. We could talk about that. Is it supply? Is it demand? Which one is it? Um, probably more supply right now due to chip shortages. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you can see immediate changes in spending when you raise rates. But, when you think about really supply that's driven, I'm with you, Derek. I don't think we're actually fixing the core of the problem by you know raising rates. Like you just said, uh, I really liked your you know your example of uh, hey, there's a finite number of seats in the stadium, but if I go outside and hand everybody three hundred dollars, guess what? And then maybe now I'll spend seven hundred dollars for a ticket where before I was only going to spend three. So you know that or four. That kind of dynamic definitely is what's happening in the economy today. Uh, I don't think raising rates is actually going to slow that down already. It'll slow that slow that down. Well, here's here's a contrarian. If you raise rates, do you increase the incentives for banks to lend more? I mean, if really, what's if with rates so low, is that causing banks not to want to lend as much? It is a contrarian take. I mean, normally you think about there's a a, a reduction in credit availability of credit. And if people can't get credit, obviously they can't go out and buy the inventory, buy you know, do a bunch of stuff. So I don't know, Jay. I mean, is that's a contrarian take? Increasing rates increases banks' willingness to lend, right? Well, I mean, they've been you know scraping together their net interest income for quite some time now. The last couple of years, as rates dropped, right? But you know, they will be slow. I think I think you bring up. I'm going to agree. You bring up a good point. They will be slow to you know increase their savings interest rate that they pay you, the saver and depositor. But they will be quick in raising their lending rates. So I think for a period of time. Right, they're gonna kind of, you know, jump ahead of the curve on this, and um, I would tell you right now they're probably not as uh, enthused about lending at rates where they are today, knowing that rates are going to go up, or with their expectation that rates are going to go up. But I do think you could see banks increasing their lending uh, business as you get through 2023 after we've had you know X number of you know, rate changes. So I don't think it's an immediate thing, but I do think it's an interesting point, Derek, that listen, that's how banks make their money, right? They 
lend at 5%, but pay 1% out on people that give them money in their deposits. And they make that net interest income. Let's face it, that's the basics of the bank model. So that's why people like the financials right now. It still seems a little early, though, for them to get aggressive on lending. All right. Here's, here's another point. How the heck does the Fed raising rates, 100 basis points, 25 basis points, do anything to fix the supply chain issue? And, and I'm going to go back to this because I think, I think we can talk about this for a bit. The Fed is not going to be able to get the ports to operate more quickly directly. We all know that when, uh, whether we want to say the Great Suppression or the lockdowns or just people's changes in behaviors, it's still that way today. I mean, people weren't going on vacation. They weren't going to concerts. And so they shifted their spending from experiential, uh, I think that's, yeah, I mean, experience-based stuff. And they bought a bunch of stuff from Amazon that was made in Asia or somewhere else and had to be put on a container ship and brought in. And that shift in itself probably caused some issues. But the Fed raising rates is not going to help that. Would you agree, Jay? Yep, I would totally agree. Right, The, the, the change in the spend uh, has definitely been evident over the last two years. I love your example of, hey, I'm not going on vacation. I'm not going to concerts. I'm going to spend my money elsewhere. There's only so many streaming services you could buy, right? I'm sure uh, you know you get your entertainment in a different way. But you're right. You're spending your money on goods instead of those experiential type dollars being spent. And so, right. And so it's probably more stuff that's getting delivered. How many people uh, bought exercise equipment? I mean, the reason Peloton went through the roof as a stock is because, oh, instead of me going on vacation, I'm going to buy a Peloton. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't buy a Peloton, by the way. I probably should have if you've seen a picture of me lately. But uh, <laughs> it's one of those things that you're right. The money got shifted. The spend got shifted from, uh, you know, experiential things uh, versus, you know, real products that you're actually buying. And so I think the Fed changing rates doesn't change that at all. That's more of a that's more of a pandemic dynamic than anything else. Uh, Mikhail Rasner was a guest on a, a podcast I listened to recently called Words and Numbers. It's an economics podcast, and I think they take a very practical view at at the world. And it was an insider's view of the supply chain, and it was kind of a fascinating listen, Jay. In that uh, they asked, I think they asked him about uh, the ports. And you remember, I think uh, there was an announcement by the administration, the Biden administration, um, the ports in LA which I think includes LA, Long Beach, um, San Diego. I think it's like a tri-party thing. And he said, what about how much better will the ports be now that they're open 24 hours? And I think the guest had said, well, they only, they're already open like 22 and a half or something like that. In other words, they're only going to be open an extra hour and a half. So I, I was kind of surprised by that. Uh, and I think I knew that, but I, I just hearing it, that, plainly was interesting. And then the guest also went on, and I'll put a, a link to the show notes for, the, for their, their episode, about there. It's there's a lot of issues. I mean, there's no room to put these empty. Nobody wants empty containers. They're stacking up. Uh, there are now uh, maybe disincentives from being able to you know charge extra when the, when the, the things are, the, the containers are there too long. And the whole idea of, you know, truckers showing up and they need some equipment to put on there and then there's a lack of that or they, nobody will take the empty container they're bringing back. So I say all this to how does the Fed raising rates a quarter point help any of that? I'm agreeing with you, Jay. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I can't connect those dots, right? The supply chain, uh, I, mean, I mean, if you're trying to adjust that, you know, delay that you have in getting containers off the boat and getting them onto a onto a truck, wouldn't you know you have to you know increase your spend to make that happen, right? Like you, oh, we got to bring more truckers in, or we have to buy more chat or get more chassis, or we got to create more containers, right? All the the things that are you know contributing to the supply chain backlog, uh, wouldn't that require borrowing and investment? Right. And wouldn't that all get more expensive if rates were higher? So, yeah, I mean, thanks for supporting the point. I just, again, I just I can't connect the dots. How raising rates is actually going to help the physical supply chain backlogs that we have. 
I mean, wouldn't you say too, we could do a shutdown? Well, I don't know if doing a shutdown would uh, would would help the supply, you know, the demand side of the supply chain. Uh, you could jack up rates to ten percent, but I think it's be careful of the unintended consequences of all these things. And in the end, maybe there has to be more fiscal adjustment. I know the government's not sending out the checks anymore. Uh, I think some people have talked about that, but some states are still doing their version of enhanced unemployment or other support. Um, so, you know, so I don't know how this all yeah. I mean, like rental out. assistance is still going on at the federal level, right? I think we talked about that. I have a neighbor that's got rental properties here in Florida and half of them are being paid by the government, not by his tenants, right? So, you know, I, you know, you want to lead that to the full employment conversation, maybe a little bit, right? Because, you know, the Fed looks at, you know, one of the things they're supposed to do is I don't think it's full employment. Like, what's the term that they use? It's not optimal employment. I don't know. It's, uh, maximum it's, employment or maximum or optimal or whatever the number is. Yeah. Right? But they look at the data and they go at 3.9% unemployment rate in the US. Like, that feels like everybody who wants a job is getting a job, right? So, you know, all these uh, openings, job openings that we have, and corporations being forced to pay more in wages. Again, higher wages are a symptom of a. Uh, a cost push slash uh, supply driven inflation environment, uh, you know, like that's, is that going to change? Right. So I, you know, you talk about the government policies that have created these unintended consequences and you look at things like employment, you know, I, I think the Fed will look and say like, well, we've kind of achieved our goal here, but you know, I don't think we've actually achieved our goal. Right. I think they're going to have to continue to uh, uh, try to help, uh, manage uh, that wage inflation, but I don't see how raising rates in this environment is going to reduce wage inflation at all. Especially that there's so you know employment is you know doing very very well here. Well, I mean, and I think you you mentioned it when you went on CNBC, uh, one of the the things was let's watch how wages are compared to inflation, and if people's wages are trailing inflation. Then at some point there's a price level of goods and services that is too much, and then you've got a the consumer has to make decisions. Let's cut this. Let's keep that. So I think that's that's also obviously when you raise wages, there's more purchasing power. But Jay, I mean, with inflation this high, consumers' purchasing power has been going down, which is sort of curious how that has not affected things yet. But Jay, don't you think that's something to watch? Yep, totally. Absolutely. I, I think it's, and you pointed out the other day, right? Wage inflation is at, a, wage growth is at a lower rate than the inflation rate, right? That was, uh, you know, so you're right. There, at some point, purchasing power is going to decline. As far as employment, um, now, the other thing too that I think is increasing prices a little bit is the shift of where people can work. I see it in Arizona. I'm sure you see it in Florida. Where people who don't no longer have to, let's say, if you're in LA and you have to drive to, uh, oh, I don't know, Studio City in LA or uh, Westwood to go to work, now you can be at your your home. Why not go to Boise, Idaho? Why not go to to uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, where we simply don't have the traffic, don't as have as higher taxes and all all the other sort of things that California does. I think there's been a shift, but if you have a home in California and you're used to paying, you know, X amount of dollars in taxes, it's not a big like the prices that we have in Arizona may not seem that high even though for us they've appreciated quite a bit. I don't know if you're seeing that in in Florida as well, Jay, but I think that's a factor. Well, yeah, I mean there's been a migration to Florida and I, you know, I don't claim to be an expert on this, right? But I think there's a lot of things, right? Lower taxes, I think, you know, bigger spaces, heck the weather. Like, sorry, man. Like I think at some point people just want to be in nicer weather like you and I do. Um <laughs> it's no offense to anybody in the cold states. I have a friend from Minnesota and she loves the snow. She loves a snowy day. She loves a dreary overcast day. But that's not for everybody. I get that. And so, uh, I, yeah, Derek, I think that migration is interesting to see the change in prices where it's like, oh, you know, my buying power from California can buy a much bigger house. I'm willing to pay a little more for something than, you know, the market would price in Arizona. But it's not a big deal because I'm selling a house here 
that's worth even more out of California. So I do think that has, you know, again, that led to some of the, uh, uh, you know, the housing boom that we've, that we've been seeing in this country. Again, you know, raising rates might slow that down a little bit, right? Like pushing rates a little higher. I think that'll be kind of the first thing that we see. And listen, I, I think rental costs are a big deal with all of this as well. Right. That was kind of an unintended consequence of the housing boom. I know two people that were renters and the people that own their house said, hey, I'm selling the house. You got to go find somewhere else to rent. Right. Like you got three months. You got to get out. Right. So like and then guess what? Where they go is going to be higher rent. Right. So rents have gone up. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, your cost, your your you know, your shelter costs, whether it's, you know, your home or it's it's uh, uh, your rental property that you're living in. Um, that is a big piece of personal spending. It's something like 30 percent, I believe. And so when that moves a little bit, it has a much bigger impact than, say, the cost of a can of corn. Right. We'll have like, hey, corn went from a buck sixty nine to two sixty nine a can. Is that breaking the bank? No, it's a huge increase, but it's not breaking the bank. But if your rent goes from two thousand a month to twenty two hundred a month, that's a big deal. It's a lot of cans of corn every month that would have to offset that, right? So yeah. I just, you know, one of those things to watch for, Derek, with, with, you know, maybe it'll slow down the, you know, raising rates might slow down that cost, right? A little bit out of the gate. I've only heard a little bit of talk of this, but there is the, we talked earlier about the unintended consequences. I, I've had, I don't, it hasn't been too much on CNBC, but maybe in other circles, the idea that there should be price controls or there should be rationing or something like that. Price controls are one of those things that seem like they would work. But Jay, what happens when you get a price control? You get people don't <laughs> want to supply. It's it's the unintended consequences, right? Yeah. And you, and you start putting businesses uh, under when they can't actually charge for what it costs them to produce goods, right? A great example is what happened over in the UK earlier or later uh, of 2021, right? Uh, I think it was up to like $8 a liter in gas and they put price controls on it. And a couple of companies said, Hey, we're done. Like we just, we can't, we can't, we actually can't be a business if you're going to limit the amount we could charge for the gasoline we're purchasing. So anybody who's listening from the UK, love to have comments on that. If you experience the same thing, uh, who's listening to the podcast, but uh uh, you know, it's just one of those things that price controls take the free market pricing out of the mix. And of course, that causes all kinds of other problems. It's actually how, in roundabout way, we got your health insurance tied to companies. Wasn't it the uh, the price that they had wage controls? And so companies to attract workers had to offer other things to get around the wage controls. I believe that's how. Uh, employer-sponsored healthcare work, but uh, that could be a Don't even a get me started pilot. on healthcare and inflation <laughs> on healthcare. Let's not even go by the way, there. <laughs> by the way, you mentioned, I, I got to bring this up because I, I love this example. You mentioned the UK. Do you know one of the best examples of unintended consequences is? Do you, do you know where I'm going with this? I, I don't. Go ahead. I'm sure you've the told Cobra me. The Cobra effect. Ahead. Have you ever heard of the Cobra effect? I have. I have. Why don't you explain it? So the the Cobra effect, you've heard of it though, right? Before I explain it. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard of it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, yeah, yeah. so the Cobra effect was, and I've when I've uh, I've mentioned before, I've I've also you know from time to time teach economics and finance at some some local universities, and we use this as an example of of the unintended consequences. And the Cobra effect was, uh, I don't remember the year, but the the deal is it's it's when the British. Um, I it was before India was independent, so it would have been you know colonial India type deal. But there was a, a number of cobras in uh, in one of the the cities in in India, and cobras are obviously dangerous; they're venomous, and so they they decided that you know you know let's get rid of these cobra snakes, and we're going to offer a bounty. Or we're going to offer money for anyone who brings in a dead cobra. The idea was we'll incent the population to kill these cobras off, and then you know we won't have this issue anymore. Well, what happened though was that people said, "Well, there's the incentives," and people react to incentives, so they started to to essentially breed cobras. <laughs> they would breed them and then bring them in to get the the reward. 
And what happened though? Well, more snakes were created. And so when the government basically was like, wait a second, we want to get cobras off the streets, but people are breeding more cobras so they can make money. We're going to stop this incentive. And then what happened? Everybody let go of their their cobras into the streets. Yeah, what are they going to do with all the cobras? So they just let them out into the streets, It was worse. It was worse than ever. So (laughs) I'm doing that from memory, Jay. I know there's a lot more details. I think you nailed it, dude. If anybody Googles the cobra effect, you'll see exactly what you just said. Yeah, it's unintended consequences. And I think, <laughs> right. but to go, but to tie this back to to what we kind of started with, sometimes different actions have unintended consequences, and the fix may not be exactly what the medicine is that's required. How's that, Jay? There you go. There you go. Uh, I I like a different analogy that you use is uh, you know when when you're a hammer, all you see is nails, right? Yep. And I think that, uh, you know, that, again, we've been going on about the Fed for quite a while here on the podcast, but I think it's, you know, they, they, they are limited in the amount of uh, uh, tools that they have. Um, you know, I think they're going to try to be, you know, uh, uh, original in the way that they deal with this, you know, supply driven inflation. But, you know, when, when, you know, the market is looking at it and go, the Fed can't do too, too many things. One of those things is raising rates. And it's right now it's, I think it's scaring the market a little bit. I, you know, I haven't really heard anybody have this discussion yet. Maybe we're completely off base, or maybe the, we're the first ones to do it. But you know, I'm going to stick with the, uh, you know, it's going to be hard to connect the dots between raising rates and dealing with supply-driven inflation. And you know, it just may be a large mistake. And I think the biggest risk to this market right now is that the Fed makes a mistake like that and they overcompensate in the wrong way. And uh, we'll see. We'll see where things land. Jay, you were quoted, I think it was in Barron's or Wall Street Journal, and the idea that the Fed, what the Fed is trying to do is thread the needle. They're trying to manage the shape of the curve, meaning not have uh, short rates get too close or, too, or certainly not above the longer rates. They're trying to keep the economy on track, and they're trying to narrowly pick a point to raise rates to that won't cause a recession or a market meltdown. And those three things are really t- difficult to do. Yeah, agreed. And it's, you know, we'll say, I, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm a little optimistic from the notes that they don't want to just go blanket raising rates, right? And just, hey, everything's a, a nail, so I'm going to hit it with my hammer or I'm a hammer, so all I see is nails and I'm just going to hammer them. So by the way, I've just botched that. I, I think that you know, I'm hoping, I'm optimistic that they realize what we're talking about here, that they're going to have to use different tactics to, you know, we, by the way, we want rates to go up, right? Rate, higher rates are a symptom of a stronger economy. We have a strong economy. I don't think anybody could argue that. Corporate earnings are the strongest that they've been. So rates should come up, you know, to a level that's higher than where it is today. We know this, right? That's, that's the natural progression of things. That's not a bad thing in the long run. But, you know, forcing it and getting it there um, by taking the wrong action is the thing that we really want to, you know, keep an eye out for and, be, and you know, and, and we just hope that they don't they don't do it in a way that causes a massive disruption in the money flow or causes a massive disruption in how allocations are. And, uh, you know, and also at the same time, helping the American public through employment and getting inflation down. Like, there's a lot of things that they have to consider. I'm glad I'm not a Fed uh, governor. I'll tell you that much. On a positive side, and and I think we referenced it. If not, we we were thinking of referencing it. It's the uh, uh, the Wilmington Trust uh, put out, you know, kind of their 2022 slide deck, uh, their forecast. And I just want to mention that inventory levels are at low points. That their chart goes back, I think, to '97. We we just haven't seen. And I think they made the point: restocking potentially could add to growth over the course of 22. By the way, that's that goes back to supply chain. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that it seems like there's either a high correlation or at least coincidental that inflation seems to mirror the increase or decrease in business supply chain delivery times. So to tie a, a bow on this before I ask you for who will win the Super Bowl eventually, because why not give more predictions that will probably be wrong? Jay, it seems like, to your point, um, 
you need to figure out the supply chain delivery times. And if you can figure that out, maybe you get inflation to come down. It's not necessarily rates, right? Yeah. I, 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 uh, somebody in our investment committee said to us, no brainer when we brought this up. Like, yeah, of course, if you could get the supply delivery times down, you're going to see prices coming down because now you, you know, you don't have to charge more to get stuff onto the shelf. Things are more normalized. Um, the other thing I'll point out about inflation, Derek, is inflation is a rate of change calculation, right? And, um, you know, the denominator is growing right now on that, right? But, you know, having consecutive years of five, six percent is really, really hard to do. You could get this pop higher and then it'll, you know, my expectation is it'll level out over time. I'm not saying when inflation. So just realize, right, when inflation, if inflation goes back down to 2 or 3%, it doesn't mean prices come down. It just means the rate of increase in prices has slowed. And so I think that's something also to remember about inflation. So if you can get the supply chain to work itself out, I think you see a normalization and the rate of change of prices, i.e. inflation, starts to flatten out a little bit. But you know, it's it's a math number, right? Whether it's wages or cost to produce things, um, you know, it's still it's still simple third grade division to come up with a rate of change of inflation. And so, just that's something to remember, right? Which is also why I think you and I are, you know, back to our first original contrarian trade, feel like things like the tips probably have overdone themselves, and commodities probably have overdone themselves a little bit right now. So, uh, tying a bow on that, I. I are you an Ozark watcher, the TV show on Netflix? Sure, it's, it's sure. Got a, Jason Bateman, awesome. That's coming back, right? Uh, yeah, we're going to get a fourth season. That's coming back. I mean, he's, he starts out as a uh, <laughs> financial advisor and winds up, well, I don't want to ruin it for anybody, uh, and from, but it's it's got a tangential or quasi-relationship to uh, to the finance world, I would say. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I mean, he was uh, he was laundering money for a drug lord, right? And then it all kind of went sideways when his partner was skimming, right? And so he yeah. has to find new places to uh, launder money. So he moves from Chicago, I think, to the Ozarks and launches a whole bunch of businesses where he can launder money. It's not yeah. the business we're recommending anybody get into, by the way. No, but it's fun to uh, watch. It's fun to watch. Yeah, and I, I and billions is Why'd coming back too. Billions is well, coming back as well. Yeah, I was because we we mentioned Succession, and I think we talked about. I mean, you and I love that show, and and it's they they. I don't want to ruin anything for anybody. If you haven't watched Succession yet on HBO, you should watch that. The and and the, give it a chance to breathe and grow because the the first half of the seasons are always setting up the last halves, right? And and they uh, the path is worth a, it. The path is worth class. it. Yeah, uh, but Billions is coming back, but no axe anymore. No, no, uh, no Axelrod. And I, I, you know, we'll see how, uh, you know, I've watched the previews of it a little bit and, uh, you know, I'm going to watch that show no matter what. I almost feel like it's mandatory viewing if you're in our industry. There's so many um, uh, market accurate things that go on in that show that it's just kind of fun, right? They actually reference things that happen in real life. I think at one point, right, they talked about, uh, you know, the VIX explosion and how they traded through that and they talk about performance ratios, all kind of stuff that you and I live every day that maybe not everybody picks up. And then that whole detail on, you know, culture and quote movies and songs and those kinds of things. Always, always fun for guys our age. But uh, I, I, you know, when people ask what show do you watch? That's the first one that I tell people. Gotta watch. I do remember the, do you remember the one though? At uh, I, I hit pause on the screen and only you and I would do this. And there was that long sort of formula with a lot of square roots and, you know, exponents and stuff. And I looked at it, I'm like, and I, I sort of wrote it down. I'm like, I don't think this is anything. I think they're trying to do a value at risk, but it's wrong, right? Yep. yep. And it turned out that the guy actually was wrong on the, on the That's board. Right. It's, when, it's when they were trying to liquidate a whole bunch of shares of, uh, I think, a natural gas company that uh, they had some inside information. Of course, they were illegally trading on it. But uh, yeah. that's what the, the hedge fund does in that story. Uh, yeah. And they were trying to figure out a way to, you know, how do we get out of this thing without, you know, taking the full loss ahead of the market open, right? So. Yeah. All right. Real quick, Jay. Contrarian pick for uh, who plays in the Super Bowl. Uh, I would say Raiders and, and Buccaneers. 
the obvious one is the Packers and probably the Chiefs or, you know, but any, any thoughts there? Oh, listen, I got to give a shout out to one of our guys here on the investment committee, but I think the Cowboys are going to be a surprise. Oh, no. I know. Oh, man. You know how it. much that hurts me to say that, to say the Cowboys? Listen, I'm, by the way, I hope the Eagles just get smashed in their first game. Just for any Eagle fans out there, I'm sorry. Derek can tell you, you could stop listening right now if you like the Eagles. You're clearly, <laughs> you have bad judgment. You should just, you know, give up on the on the broken by chart. But, uh, I, gosh, and you know, it hurts me to to say the Cowboys could do well, but I do think, I think they've, I think they've got a chance. I think they've got strong momentum, and that defense is is pretty tough, pretty tough. Dak's got to get his head out of his butt. But besides that, I think that I think they got a chance to surprise people. Well, they did luck out that the Cardinals aren't playing there because uh, we seem to always win every time we're at Texas Stadium or or, or whatever that AT and T Stadium, as they call it now. But um, we'll save the uh, we'll save how to fix the New York Giants for another podcast. We simply would not have enough time. And with that, Jay, Oof. thanks for uh, coming on again. And uh, hopefully, you won't wait uh, too long to come back. I'll remind everybody to uh, if. Uh, Broken Pie Chart and Buy and Hedge are two books that, if you haven't gotten already, they make great. Uh, they make great. Uh, I don't know. President's it, Day. It's gifts, Valentine's right? Day. Valentine's Day is coming up. I do think it's a uh, you know give yeah, the gift of money to a loved one. I think it makes a lot of sense. It, the yeah the holiday uh, Martin Luther King Day is Monday and sadly I by the time you listen to this you won't have enough time to uh, to order it. But yeah, by Valentine's Day that's a good one. <laughs> uh, always a good gift. You realize, and people listening to this, it doesn't matter what holiday is coming up. It's always a good gift. I think we had people giving it at Halloween, although kids would probably throw it back at you. And uh, anyway, <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yes, Jared, Derek, I'll be for, on. Uh, I'll be back on before the next prime number, which which is one fifty seven. We're not going to go that long, I promise. All right, all right, folks, uh, and thanks to you in uh, Belarus, Denmark, Luxembourg. We uh, we were pretty high on on the on the charts there during the week, and I I, I say this uh, jokingly. I don't get the best data uh, yet on where that is, but at least people listening on Apple Podcasts, we seem to have found uh, a following. Uh, no one in Gibraltar yet, but one day, Jay, one day. You're gonna give them a All book, right. right? I will. I will. Anyone who uh, can <laughs> listens to the podcast. And uh, has a Gibraltar address. I think that's the way you say it. I will send a signed book, but sadly, no one yet in that area of the world. All right, Jay, let's leave it there before the three people who are still listening decide not to. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jay. Thank you, Derek.